This is Mark 14, 32 to 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went and he prayed, saying the same words, and again... He came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our Lord will stand forever. Please be seated. I'm in a time when uh, I've got a little more spare time to, uh, to translate whole sections from Greek, which I'm slow at, so I wrote a translation for this morning, and I'd like to read it to you and just comment a little bit, and then we'll, we'll get into the message. So same text, um, and I'm going to really just focus on verse 36. I'll have a couple points that are kind of a summary of the, uh, the entire passage, but a lot of my time will be spent just on verse 36. Here's the text again. And coming to a plot of land called Gethsemane with his disciples, he said, sit here while I pray. And taking Peter and James and John with them, this is the so-called inner circle of Jesus, his closest friends, uh, same, same men who were there at the Mount of Transfiguration, he began to be awestruck or stunned, is another way you could translate that, and to be greatly distressed. And you'll notice there are two parallel sections here. Now you're going to get the same idea, and that's going to be repeated. And then further down, uh, you'll, you'll have another repetition. I'll show you that. And he said, so now he's really speaking for himself about the thing that Mark has just told you. He said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Stay here and watch. And, and watches can also be translated keep vigil. Uh, the name Gregory comes from this word. So Gregory the Great, he's, he's named, you know, in the hopes that he'll be a man who keeps vigil. We have Easter vigils, right? This, this time of year, it's a time of praying and keeping watch. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the moment might pass from him. And he said, Abba, uh, uh, 
Abba Father, it's, it means dad or daddy. I mean, you've probably heard lots of people comment on this. We've got three grandkids. They're all just at the point of being able to say sort of those uh, multi-syllabic same sounds that little kids make. So uh, this makes my day every time I hear it. I get on FaceTime with my granddaughter and she goes, Papa, right? She can repeat those sounds easily. Abba is just that. So um, you hear people say, well, it's not really daddy. It, it's not really implying a great deal of intimacy. I, I don't know what else it would be. I mean, when you're talking about uh, a child speaking its first syllables in identifying its father, I think you're talking about intimacy. I think you have to take Abba in that way. I think it is speaking about the intimacy between a child and, and its parents. So Jesus says Abba, which is, again, just Aramaic for dad. And then he says, Father, all things are possible to you. Take away this cup from me. But not what I desire, that's the actual Greek word, not what I desire, but rather what you desire. And coming and finding them sleeping, he says to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Do you not have strength to keep vigil for one hour? Keep watch and pray so you will not come to temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is feeble. And again, having gone, he prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And coming a third time, people don't talk about this too much, but really there are two uh, threefold betrayals on Peter's part, right? Not just his denial of Jesus in the courtyard of the high priest, but also this moment, not as dramatic, but still a, a failure before the Lord. Coming a third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and taking refreshment or rest? The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is put in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Look, the one handing me over draws near. We'll pray and then we'll dive into this. Father, we pray for uh, your own words, your own speaking to us. We pray that in the resonance that exists between our being indwelt by your spirit and your speaking in your word by your spirit, that you would bring to us your truth. Bring these words home to us. And Father, we pray, we pray this every time we read your word. We pray that we would not be left unchanged. We pray that it would strike us in a way that um, surpasses our understanding. We pray that we would be transformed in our inner being and so be really incrementally at each encounter with you and your word that we would be incrementally transformed increasingly into the image and likeness of your son. We ask it especially now as, as Lent begins and it's a season of meditation on these things. We pray in his name, amen. Gethsemane's a grove of trees on a hillside above Jerusalem. Uh, you don't have to go very far up the Mount of Olives to be looking down on the Temple Mount. It's away from the city. Uh, it would have been dark. It would have been quiet. Uh, the groves arguably are still there. Nobody knows exactly which one it was, but there are olive trees that are, at some say, around 2,000 years old, so you can still go visit 
It's probably very close to the site of, of this night. When Jesus speaks uh, the word for how he feels, the word means he's engulfed in sorrow. And that sorrow is somehow, I mean, I don't understand exactly what this means, but that sorrow is somehow to the point of death or to the edge of death. Jesus doesn't speak much about his inner state. He's not someone who's always describing how he feels inside. So it's a rare moment. You're getting this insight into how uh, how he's perceiving the moment, how he feels, what's happening inside him. I want to try to say, and I don't know exactly how to express this, and I don't even know if I'm going to capture it, but if we're ever going to love Jesus, I think it'll be in this, in this moment. I think the word ineffable was invented for moments like this. Ineffable means it cannot be expressed in words, and I think that's very close to what this moment is. So I don't know a phrase that captures the power of this moment, but it's something like this. This is just a description. A person suffering in silence for the sake of those who do not understand and others who do not care, yet still he gives himself entirely without bitterness, without resentment. And then I think this gets closer to us and how we would act in this moment or the kind of emotional manipulation that people engage in when they think that you owe them something, right? We, we all know that. It happens in every marriage. It happens in every middle school. It happens in all sorts of relationships. And Jesus is completely devoid of it. There's no twisting of the knife, no emotional manipulation of any kind. Jesus is the definition, and I think this is literally true. I think this is where we get our definition of altruism, a word that means devotion to the, well, to the welfare of others without concern for the self. Devotion to the welfare of others without concern for the self. He loves people. He's still loving people that I would be tempted to despise because they failed to recognize the greatness of my sacrifice, right? I, I wanna, if I'm going to sacrifice myself to this degree, I want credit for it. I want credit for it from the people around me or anybody who's going to pay attention. Jesus is devoid of that also. He said, man has no greater love than this that one should lay down his life for his friends. I think the irony or maybe the poignancy of this moment is all of his friends happen to be asleep. There's a kind of destruction of our sense of justice in that, right? They should be awake. They should know what he's doing for them. There's a destruction of our understanding of what's fair. If we were to pay the kind of price that Jesus is paying on this night and the day that follows, we would need to extract some kind of compensation from either the people around us or the circumstances or the moment. Listen to this. Jesus' compensation is to have us with him in eternity. That's his payment for the sacrifice he makes on this night. There's a hymn I like in the last stanza. The writer is saying that he has, he has no answer to give to God for his sin. And he says, but, but you will answer for me, righteous Lord. Thine all the merits 
Mine the great reward, thine the sharp thorns, and mine the golden crown, mine the life won, and thine the life laid down. That's the beautiful irony of redemption, and the irony of this moment in the garden, all of the cost is his, but all of the benefit is ours. All the benefit belongs to us. And I think, or I hope, I mean, I hope this is true for myself, that the more I understand this, the more it continues to change me. And I do think that's the process. I think you spend your whole life growing in your understanding of the depth of the love of Christ, not just in an objective and personal sense, but for you. And the more you understand the love of Christ for you, the more it changes you. You become a different person. Uh, It's kind of unthinkable that you would be loved that way. And so it transforms you from the inside. So really that's the whole sermon. But Craig asked me to preach for two hours. So I've got these few other points. And I've got a handful of observations. uh, And then I'm just going to bring us back to this opening idea. Here's the first This is the story of two gardens. I had no idea uh, the account from Genesis 3 was going to be in the liturgy this morning, so that was perfect. This is the story of two gardens. This is an echo of the Garden of Eden, Gethsemane, in which the self becomes, in the Garden of Eden, the self becomes the great idol of human history. Uh, I don't know that I really recognized that when I was younger, But year by year by year, decade by decade, I'm just convinced that's really what's happening in Eden. Adam and Eve are different from each other in how they serve themselves, but both of them displace God with themselves. Both of them put themselves in his place just by ignoring what he's called them to and doing instead what they chose to do. I mean, we call that now self-determination. That's what they both engage in. Uh, Both become self-determined, but the tragedy is they will never be self-sufficient, but they are the beginning of that belief that that most of us have to some degree in our own self-sufficiency, that somehow we're capable in ourselves, we can do it in ourselves, we can handle it in ourselves. Before uh, the service, I've never worn a collar, I'm wearing this for Craig, you know, when in Rome... Uh, well, not actually Roman Catholicism, but just, yeah, just as an expression. Um, and I thought, you know, I have a friend who wears the collar all the time, and he says part of what he gets from it is accountability. And I remember thinking when he told me that, um, well, you know, man up. I mean, do you have to wear a collar so that you actually act like a Christian? But really, you know, when I say that, What I'm failing to understand is I need accountability. I mean, I need all the accountability I can get. If a collar helps you pay attention to who you actually are, you know, wear the collar. I would say, though, in this garden, this is where the real battle for redemption is won. Uh, the, The real battle, at the very least, it begins here. Redemption is accomplished on the cross, but really it's settled in the garden on this night, it's decided here. Let let me take a second, try to explain that. Here's our description of Eve, which you just heard read a moment ago. When the woman, woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, so these are all her own perceptions, right, her own sensibilities, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And I think it's great to use that word because 
When Jesus says, it's not what I want, he's actually saying, it's not what I desire. Not his desires, but God's desires. If the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and the ate. She's, she has desires, and what Eve does is she rejects God's command, and she follows her desires. So here's Jesus, Abba, Father. All things are possible to you. Take away this cup from me, yet not what I desire, rather what you desire. The Greek literally says, not what I desire, but you. So just like Eve, Jesus has his own desires. There are things that he personally wants, and he rejects those in humility before the Father, and that's a crucial piece of the work of Redemption. Uh, All the discourse about personhood in our culture right now is kind of a hundred variations of self-determination. In our culture right now, people think all the tyrants in their lives, you can hear this all the time everywhere, people think all the tyrants in their lives are external to them. It's somebody, it's not me, it's somebody in my life who's oppressing me. It's some circumstance that's oppressive to me. It's a government that's oppressive to me. But in Scripture, the real tyranny is sin. The real bondage is sin. And sin lives here. That's the tyrant. We are our own tyrants. We provide all the tyranny we could possibly cope with in this world. C.S. Lewis says, from the moment a creature becomes aware of God as God and of itself as self, the terrible alternative of choosing, and he means choosing God's, choosing between God and self is open to it. This sin is committed daily by children and peasants as well as by sophisticated people, by loners, no less than those who live in society. It is the, the fall in every individual life. I think what he says from here on is stunning. It is the fall in every individual life, right? That choice of yourself as God. It is the basic sin behind all particular sins. I mean, that's an incredibly bold statement. This is the root of all sin. It's the basic sin behind all particular sins at this very moment You and I are either committing it or about to commit it or we are repenting of it. This is so counterintuitive in an age like ours. This is an important statement. Jesus' act of self-negation is the most beneficial and beautiful thing that has ever happened to human beings. Jesus' act of self-negation It's the most beneficial and beautiful thing that's ever happened to human beings. The death of the self sets us free. That's that's our bondage. So that's the first point uh, about this night, uh, this garden, a reversal of the Garden of Eden, uh, original sin of self-exaltation dies, a long-deserved death in Jesus' prayer on this night. Here's the second point. There's really something important about prayer in this text, and I want to try to pull this out, and I think this is key. Some of you, when you look at verse 36, you're thinking, well, Jesus is not really denying himself. In fact, he's asking to be released from denying himself. And in a way, that's exactly right. At dinner in verse 22, he takes the cup, 
So this is, we didn't read it. It's just above where we are now. He takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He knows the mission, right? He knows that he came to die. That's his purpose. And now, 14 verses later, now he says, take this cup from me. You can't mistranslate the phrase, the Greek verb for take or take away is an imperative. It's the command form. Jesus is saying to the Father, don't ask me to do this. It's as clear as, as he could make it. Um, and that sounds like just the opposite of altruism. He's trying to get out of it. Here's what I want to argue, and this is the point I'm going to make a couple different ways. I think it's just honesty. And honesty with God is intimacy with God. Honesty with God is intimacy with God. Jesus has no intention of disobeying the Father, but he also has no intention of speaking falsely. It's important for us to remember, this is kind of an aside, but it's important for us to remember he's human. He's fully God, but he's fully man. He's like us. Pain and suffering are not attractive to him in any way, no, no more so to him than to you. So he says, I don't want to do this. I don't want this to happen to me. Here's the thing I want to hang out on for a second. I think a lot of our own prayers are filtered. We self-edit a lot that we should not self-edit. Um, I call it pious dishonesty. If you want to get pious dishonesty by the boatload, go to a prayer meeting. We're even more hesitant in public to pray things that we feel like we're not supposed to pray. So we screen out the things that we think are, you know, whatever, too honest, or they're unorthodox, or I shouldn't feel this way, so I can't pray this way. Um, we, we filter all that. We end up praying prayers. This is, these are two dangers. I think these are so bad. We end up praying prayers that don't make contact with what's really happening inside of us. So prayer becomes boring and irrelevant to us. It doesn't make contact with who we are. Why pray? There's no real place where I'm intimate with God in prayer. I'm just praying all this pious nonsense that I feel like I'm supposed to pray. I think Satan loves this. The further you are from God to him, the better. And so he's always cultivating that sense of, oh, you shouldn't pray that. You shouldn't even think that. You shouldn't feel that way. I'll give you an example. If I'm honest, uh, which I am sometimes, there are certain sins I like. There are certain sins I like. I mean, isn't that what temptation is? You're attracted to it. There are things that you do wrong and you like those things. If you didn't like them, you wouldn't do them. It may also be the case that you hate them, but that's just Paul in Romans 7. There are things you hate and you still do them. And you do them because you like them and you hate them. Both of those are true at the same time. It's taken me a long time to learn to say in prayer, Lord, I'm tempted to this sin because I like it. I'm drawn to this because I like it. Um, to just be honest with him. Um, I, 
I, I think for years I didn't pray that way because I was hoping I was somebody else, right? I was hoping I wasn't a person who liked that sin. But, uh, you know, I'm, if I die at my father's age, I'm, I've got 20 years left. And it's probably time to be honest about who I really am because if I was going to change in this one way, there's a good chance it would have happened by now. I've also prayed this. There are certain patterns of temptation in my life that I can remember from the time I was five years old. I have a distinct memory for one particular thing. Um, I've said to God, five years old, why would you tempt a five-year-old with that kind of sin? I don't know that he's answered that question. I don't think he has. But the honesty of feeling free to, to pray it has changed my prayer life. More than that, I think it's changing my relationship with God because, right, how we started out, honesty is intimacy. Once you begin to be genuinely honest with God, uh, you're more intimate with God. So my encouragement to you is just forget the pious dishonesty. He knows everything, everything you think, everything you feel. You might as well just talk to him about it. You might as well just tell him those things that are in your heart. Hebrews 2.17 says, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Beautiful words, merciful and faithful. Pray to him about everything in your life with the expectation that you'll be met with mercy and with faithfulness. Um, the only danger there is dishonesty. He'll respond to you with mercy and faithfulness. Okay, last point. Obviously, a crucial element in this passage is the failure of the disciples to watch and pray. So this text is kind of a famous morality tale. Don't do what the disciples did. You need to stay alert. Your prayer life needs to be deep and real, and you need to stay on watch. In a way, those ex exhortations are legitimate. Jesus taught things like that. So here's Matthew 24. But know this, that in the, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house, let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. Jesus uses lots of different metaphors to teach that same idea. So it's a legitimate thing to teach that we need to uh, keep vigil and need to pray. I also think it's hard to read 1 Peter 5 and imagine Peter doesn't have this night in mind when he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter's failure in the garden would have been burned into his conscience. And so I think when he says that you need to stay awake, stay alert, he's... I, I just can't imagine he's not thinking of that night. But I think the failure of the disciples is really taking us back to the opening point about the nature of Jesus' love for his people. He suffers while they sleep. Uh, he's, he suffers to redeem people who are oblivious to what he's doing. Uh, he does it without resentment, without bitterness, without regret. And I 
look back at my own life and I think there are so many times when I was just oblivious to what he had done in my life. I just, I just, I didn't know. I was either ignorant or I didn't care. And it, did, it was no prevention, right? It didn't keep Christ from laying his life down for me and for you. Ver, verse 38, which is about us, Jesus says, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. He's saying, look, I know your hearts are in the right place. You're just feeble. You're not able to do the thing that I'm asking you to do. And I would say the effect of the narrative is to say, Jesus is saying to us, I'm not waiting for you to become worthy of the death of the Son of God. That day will never come. I'm doing this because I love you, not because you stayed awake. So stay awake or sleep his love and his mercy in your life is a constant. So Gethsemane becomes a picture, a picture of our relationship to God and redemption. Uh, it's that hymn that I mentioned a, a second ago. Thine all the merits, mine the great reward. I don't have any merits of my own. Thine the sharp thorns, mine the golden crown. Mine the life won and thine the life laid down. It's the stark contrast between Christ and, and me that reveals the nature of the love of Christ. So there's no syllogism. God loves righteous people. I'm a righteous person. Therefore, God loves me. Jesus, this entire narrative is really killing <clears throat> that syllogism. I'm unrighteous and he loves me. What did you say earlier that the only criteria for redemption is that we're sinners or something like that? Yeah, it's, a great, it's a great point. Anyway, all of that brings us full circle. Jesus is devoted to the well. This is altruism. Jesus is devoted to the welfare of others without regard to himself. Maybe it's better to say Jesus is devoted to the welfare of those who don't really understand the depth and the passion of his devotion still he gives those to us he gives his passion and he gives his devotion to us holds nothing back holds nothing against us I love uh, the question and answer uh, 60 in the Heidelberg Catechism here it is how are you righteous before God the answer is only by true faith in Jesus Christ even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of having never kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil. Nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Really, here's the, here's the clause I wanted to get to. As if I had never sinned nor been a sinner... I mean, it's incredible. I think it's true. I've actually read Reformed people who argue against that clause, and I think they're wrong. I think they're missing the point of the grace of God. And as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. I and mean, that's what that hymn is saying. Here's, here's a great finish to this, and they wisely put it in its own paragraph. All I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. That's all you need to do. 
as Lent begins and, and we do our best to keep vigil and, and maybe fail at keeping vigil, I would just remember this last line. All you need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that you would just take us ever deeper into these truths. All, all the things that I did not see in coming to this text and did not preach, show us all those other things that you know and see so clearly. We pray, Lord, that it would result in just a greater and greater honesty and intimacy with you, that we too would be conformed to your image and likeness. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.